Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Every other week, we'll be bringing you a special phone a friend episode between either Ann or me and one of our rad pals. So this week, Amina, I talked to journalist Maria Konnikova. Oh my God, she has a book out that I love. The Confidence Game. She is an expert on con artists. Uh, my favorite vertical. <laughs> and related phenomena like uh, sociopaths. We had like a really funny conversation about psychopaths and sociopaths and the typical gender breakdown of that behavior. Uh, can't wait to hear this. Maria, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. I have to tell you that I read your book in like three sittings because there was something kind of car crash-like about it that I I couldn't look away. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that as a compliment. (laughs) Not not due to your prose, but just due to the phenomena that you write about um, where it, it sort of has that feeling. I guess now I'm really mixing my metaphors of like, you know, when you read a health article where you're like, this could strike you at any moment. That's sort of how I felt reading your book. I was like, have I been conned? Like, am I, am I going to be conned? Did you come away from the reporting process feeling nervous about that? <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I felt like I could not trust humanity that just everyone sucked, people sucked, everyone was out to get me, and that ju- the world was just a horrible place. I, I was just so dispirited by the end of it. The more I got into the research and the more con artists I met with and the more victims I met with, the more I realized that, oh my God, this, this actually does happen. It could very, very well happen to me. And in fact, I am positive that I've been conned and not been aware of it, both in small ways and potentially in bigger ways. I just can't pinpoint when. That's a little bit scary. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's just blowing my mind that like I've probably been conned and didn't even know it multiple times. (laughs) What are some of the signs that like maybe this is a con or you've been conned? Well, I think one of the things we really need to be aware of too good to be true in positive ways. So when something just really remarkable seems to be happening to you, it often ends up not actually being true. But when it's happening to us, we don't realize it's too good to be true. And I'm not actually just talking about money. A lot of people would hear this and say, you know, oh, well, you know, I'd never fall for a lottery scam. Like, obviously, that's stupid. But think about how many times people fall for relationship scams or something that are actually kind of minor cons, people who have no desire to be in a relationship. I actually spoke to some pickup artists for the book that didn't make it in, but they are con artists of of a sort. And you really want to believe it and you convince yourself and you probably even after it's over, don't realize that you've actually been conned. So so that's also too good to be true. And on the other side, you have stories that are 
too sad to be true. And that's much more difficult to resist, even though we are often more capable of seeing those signs, because it's one of those things where it's just so taboo and so socially unacceptable to question it. We also don't think anyone would lie about it. So I write about some con artists, you know, one who pretended that she was a victim of sex trafficking, for instance. So what are you going to do? Say, I don't believe you. You have to give me proof. Where are the papers that say you've been sex trafficked? We can't do that. So even if we see that red flag, we're actually probably going to ignore it. And there's really no good advice for that in the sense that what what are you going to say? Like, sh- show me that you have cancer. The sob stories are much more difficult to evade, I think, than a lot of the positive ones. It's so funny because as I was reading it, I was thinking about how as a reporter, your job is to ask questions about everything and try not to make assumptions. And it would seem that in some ways a book like this, that is like asking whether everything is a con (laughs) is like the ultimate version of that. Like in some ways it's like the ultimate like reporting task. And in other ways it's like the ultimate tinfoil hat conspiracy. (laughs) Like I feel like in some ways it's the most practical thing you can do. And also like the craziest to keep asking, like, is this real? Is there some other motivation? Absolutely. Well, and some of the, some of the people that I write about in here actually ended up being journalists. And I think some of them ended up unwittingly conning others because they didn't do that. It shows just how, you know, how much of a burden we carry as journalists to really fact check what we do. Um, You know, I I read about the Rolling Stone fiasco with the rape case, which was just terrible. It almost set the cause back rather than bringing it forward, which it was meant to do because you want to believe that story so much. And I don't actually think that we're dealing with, you know, a reporter who was malicious. I just think that she really got caught up in this as so many of us would because it's such a good story. And we, I think it did, it did bring home to me, you know, just how much we have to follow that trust, but verify dictum and do that, not just when we're reporting stories, but in our lives more broadly. But it's hard. I mean, at a party, I don't want to ask everyone, you know, oh, really, is that really what you do? Um, you know, are you are you really a best-selling author? Or are you just someone who's telling me you're a best-selling author? You know, I, I, I don't, um, it's harder to do when you're not on, so to speak, when you're not actually reporting a story. There's a lot in this book that's about fundamental facts of human nature. <laughs> um, yes. You know, yes. We, we, we like stories and we're predisposed to believe people actually. Um, it, do you think that this is sort of innate, like behavior? Like are humans built to sort of elaborately lie? I think, I think, I think both things are true. I think we're built to trust. It's at a very, very basic level. It starts with the level of perception where we have to kind of trust that what we see in the world is real before we start figuring out, wait, can this actually exist? We have evolved to trust one another rather than question one another. At least that's always our first instinct. And then on the, on the flip side of that, I think we do all have a little bit of a con artist's sitting inside us in the sense that we do all lie on a really daily basis. And you find that it's really universal. I mean, you have deception throughout the animal kingdom. I wish I could have included all of the animals. I have just two paragraphs on animals in the book, but they were so interesting. There are so many liars in the animal kingdom and so many studies of, you look at them and you're like, oh, that's a very human behavior. And I think it also, it kind of helps grease 
each each conversation and each social interaction, you don't want people to always tell you the truth. I think that would make us really sad. I certainly don't always want to know, you know, when I look bad and when I look tired and that someone doesn't really like me or that someone's not interested in hearing what I have to say. You know, it's actually, it's much nicer to believe those little social lies that we hear all the time. <laughs> so where where is there a line where someone goes from becoming like a serial liar maybe or like maybe even an average liar to a con artist like what is the distinction yeah that's a really good question and it's actually one that I've struggled with because it's very easy to say well don't a lot of these things just apply to everyone? And I think you do have to draw the line somewhere. I do draw it at intention because I think most of us don't do it with evil or nefarious intent. We're not out for personal gain in, in any kind of real sense. We're not trying to manipulate others to do our bidding so that we get something out of it. Instead, we're doing it with good goals and with good aims and we're really not out to really screw people over, so to speak, the way that con artists are. I think that it is a combination of opportunity and disposition. So in the exact same situation, I think some people would turn to kind of deception and con artist-like tactics while others would not. So I do think there has to be some sort of predisposition there. But that said, would the same person after lying successfully keep lying if the predisposition is there? I think that that's actually a very real possibility. And we do see it with a lot of con artists playing out in just that way, that they kind of... They don't slip up. I mean, they make a conscious effort, but then they get away with it. And they realize that they actually really enjoyed the feeling of getting away with it. I think that's part of it. They get a rush out of it. It's kind of, it's this kick of of adrenaline, of, I don't know, serotonin, of power, where you say, whoa, that feels good. No one noticed. And so you keep doing it again. And I think then it becomes a really self-reinforcing behavior. Yeah, it's also interesting because, I mean, I'm always curious about how people tell stories about themselves. Like, you know, I could selectively give you details about my life and have you come away with like several (laughs) different impressions of who I am, you know, and none of those details would be lies. I mean, again, this kind of goes back to like being a journalist or being a writer. I mean, you, you and I both know that you can reveal nothing but truths about someone, but because you Mm -hmm. selectively left out three things, you can paint a really specific picture or you can, how you can con without lying potentially. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we, we talk about lies of commission and lies of omission. And I think con artists most definitely use both. I think one of the things that fascinates me and I think fascinates others about con artists is that they often don't actually do anything criminal. Like if you catch them, they haven't stolen anything. They haven't broken any laws. They've just gotten you to do stuff and to give them your confidence, give them your trust, give them your money, give them your love, give them your emotional involvement, whatever it is, you know, give them your respect, whatever they're looking for. But they, they've never actually kind of lied you supplied a lot of the missing links so you and I are writers so we both know about the case of Joan Allaire obviously that was kind of very big for 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 us um, a few years ago and one of the things that he did is he just didn't correct other people's mistakes about him so I don't think he ever actually said you know oh I have a PhD but when people called him a neuroscientist he didn't correct it so that's kind of a lie of omission you present information in a way that makes it seem like you 
are more qualified than you actually are. And you let those misconceptions go. And that suddenly creates the sort of picture of you that's quite inaccurate. Oh, man. I'm wondering about Obviously, there are both male and female con artists who are written about in your book. But Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about in terms of the tactics they use or maybe Mm -hmm. the motivations, if there are gender differences in, in how that manifests. I wish I had a really good answer to that question. I think it's really important. Um, I have one answer, but it's a very partial answer. I talk about the dark triad of traits that a lot of con artists possess, and that's psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. What we know is that there are basically no female psychopaths. It's fewer than 1%. I mean, we're talking about like 0.01, something along those lines of a percentage of all existing psychopaths are female. And so that's definitely one big difference. So insofar as con artists are psychopathic, those are going to be men. These are people who actually don't feel empathy, actually don't experience emotion in the same way. Women, on the other hand, probably do, and they are much more calculated in how they deploy their emotion. That would be one difference. But that said, there are also men who aren't psychopaths who are con artists. (laughs) Oh, really? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So so it's a really... (laughs) I thought you were going to stop the sentence at men who aren't psychopaths. (laughs) Oh, yeah, let's do that. So there are men who aren't psychopaths. Can we have that be the last sentence of the interview? Please, yeah. I'll, I'll quote you on that. But um, so I I have a pet theory. So people obviously know more about male con artists in the sense that they've been covered, I think, more extensively. And I, on purpose, actually wrote about women to say, hey, you know, a lot of the best con artists are female. But we have really bad statistics on con artists because most con artists are never caught. The vast majority are never reported. And that's either because people are really embarrassed or because they don't realize they've been scammed. So my pet theory is that actually women probably make better con artists. That's why we don't know about them, because they're still operating. They don't get caught. Yes, and they probably, and they don't need the recognition. So most of the people who I had to basically fend off, who were so eager to talk to me, were men. The few females who I interviewed, I had to really track them down and really ask them to talk to me. Um, Men were much more eager to kind of share their stories. They were much more kind of, they wanted their names and what they did out there. Women, not so much. Probably not surprising, maybe, but (laughs) that is so interesting.
So, okay, you said right off the bat, you've probably been conned, but don't even know it. Like, if you were to guess, like, okay, what are the types of cons that someone like you or me has probably fallen for, even though we don't realize it? Sure. Well, we've, I mean, I've certainly given money before to either panhandlers or someone who I didn't realize was a panhandler um, to someone who said, hey, like, I don't have my Metro card. Can you give me a swipe? Or can I have some cash for the bus? Or, I don't have my wallet or I don't have this or I don't have that. So I've definitely given a few bucks here and a few bucks there. And I'd like to think that, you know, all of those people were legitimate, but I'm willing to bet that some of them weren't. I'm also willing to bet that most people who live in a city have fallen for a con like that at some point. Have you, I mean, have you ever given money to anyone? Yeah, as I was reading your book, I was actually thinking about a guy who approached me. I was like outside a farmer's market or doing something that like, you know, I'm sure he was like, I'm going to target people who, who are weird bleeding <laughs> hearts. But, um, but he, he, I forget what it was, but it was like a, you know, it was framed as some kind of bigger charity donation. Mm-hmm. And I like gave him some money. And later I was like, oh, that was just for that guy to get something to eat. And I didn't necessarily feel bad about it. And I don't even care if the answer was yes, it was, or no, it really was for the charity. But that's definitely something that I thought about, mm-hmm. like a super tiny, a super tiny thing that didn't really matter that much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and something, I mean, you could actually probably call this a con. Um, I, I dated a psychopath. I actually had an ex-boyfriend who I'm pretty certain, and I spent a lot of time with him, so I feel more, much more comfortable giving a psychological diagnosis, who I feel fairly certain was a psychopath, and that and actually had lied about a lot of things about himself. So in that sense, I was conned in actually kind of a big way. He wasn't an imposter. He was exactly who he said he was, but there were lots of details about his life and about what he did that never added up. So I think that people like us could unfortunately also fall for something like that. I mean, all of us want to believe that you'll meet, you know, the perfect love. And we, we often don't, uh, don't even see, we don't see the red flags when they're there. I should have in retrospect, when I analyze that relationship, I think, oh my God, what, what was I thinking? But it was, it was really, it was really rough while I was in it. I have a particularly bad ex and I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he was a psychopath. (laughs) Tell me, Tell me the tell me the telltale signs. Sure. Um, so so psychopaths, as I think I briefly mentioned, they don't experience emotion the way that we do, the way that healthy people experience it. And they actually they have differences in parts of the brain, like the amygdala, which are quite closely connected to emotional processing. They don't actually feel like empathy for you. They don't feel what you feel. They they don't project in that same way. And so they're much more cold and rational and coldly calculating what i mean by that is that they will they will understand exactly how you feel but on a totally cold and rational basis so they can actually manipulate it they don't get emotionally involved in it so they'll be able to take advantage of it and they'll say okay right now she needs this and this is what i'm going to project right now she needs this and this is what i'm going to project that said it's not that they don't themselves express emotion they can get incredibly angry and irrationally angry. So that's one of the kind of, one of the telltale signs that they when they feel like they're not getting what they deserve because they normally have a very high sense of themselves, they will suddenly just lash out and get very out of character or so you think because they're very charismatic usually. They're very kind of sweet and nice. But if you cross them in that way, they can get very explosive and very reactive. 
or perhaps I mean I'm now I'm I'm totally 100% also convinced I've dated a psychopath um, <laughs> I was just gonna say or they get angry when you when you sort of realize that what they're doing is analytically responding to your emotions yes. rather than dealing with you authentically. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so they, they have this very kind of, they have a very grandiose sense of themselves and they, that kind of goes to thinking that you will never see through them, that you actually understand exactly what they're doing. This is just like a hazard of heterosexual dating for women, clearly. I'm like, I feel like I'm like understanding women's horror stories in a whole new way. <laughs> oh. um, and they, they also actually, one of the other characteristics of psychopathy is they don't ever feel guilt or remorse. So they can do really horrible things to you. Can I say shitty on your podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So they do these really shitty things to you. And then they really, they don't feel bad about it at all, but they can fake feeling bad. So you can say, okay, he felt bad. He'll never do it again, but he didn't actually feel bad. So he will do it again. There is that there's just no, no guilt there because they never thought that they were actually doing anything wrong to begin with. And they're also often kind of a little bit parasitic. they like other people there. They like the trappings of a normal life. They don't want to be called out as a psychopath. One of the things they get off on is kind of, getting people to, to think that they're so wonderful. And psychopaths aren't wonderful, right? Charismatic and kind of people are wonderful. They need this image to, to really remain intact. Oh my God. And so I, I also feel like now, I, I, um, it's been a while since I read your book, but just like talking to you now, I feel like I've, the title, The Confidence Game, I'm like, is that just life? <laughs> is this everything? Like, or, or is it screwed up people? <laughs> you know, in some ways it is everything, and in some ways it isn't. You have to, in order for the book itself to make sense, you do have to draw the line so that, so that you kind of can figure out who's a con artist and who's not. But to be perfectly honest, I mean, it explains how a lot of relationship work. It's just a matter of degree, not a like a huge difference. I think this is a lot of how how relationships actually develop and how we get people to trust us. Um, and when I was when I reread my book, I was actually a little bit horrified because I thought this is actually not just doesn't just explain it. It's a pretty good guide <laughs> to how to exploit people. Yeah, I, I had that thought. Um, I mean, again, reading it as a reporter, you know, you and I talk to strangers a lot who we I don't need them to trust me like a friend or confidant, but I usually need people to trust that I'll portray them accurately, that right, I right. truly care about, you know, like conveying what they're saying to me, right. you know, that I don't have some ulterior motive. And like, it is true that like, I'm sure in lots of professions, it's, it works to your advantage to gain people's trust quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh man, and being good at that is clearly such, such a... I don't know, it's both, it's, I, I can see how it's innate for some people, or they're more predisposed to being great at it, but I mean, other, other people hone it, like, that's part of, like, you know, becoming good at your profession. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many professions are predicated on it. You know, one of the things I found hilarious in a kind of non-hilarious way when I was doing this was that one of the kind of so-called Bibles of the con artist is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a book that's, that, you know, that's recommended to, that's recommended to business people, lawyers. It's recommended to a lot of people, actually, all the time. I mean, it's one of these perennial bestsellers, probably one of the bestsellers of the 20th century, wouldn't you say? 
Oh, yeah. It's like a hugely iconic book. Those are the exact same principles that you need if you're going to take in your mark and be able to pull off your con. Well, Dale Carnegie was himself a con artist. Like when he wrote that book, he wasn't successful at anything. He was a failed salesman. That is such a good point. That's exactly, I think that's getting at exactly what your point is, that being good at that really can make you successful in all walks of life. I mean, David Moore, who wrote The Big Con back in 1940, which is just such a fun and incredible book, and he spent years with them because he he was studying their language. He's a linguist. He actually points out at some point, and I, I think I quote him, I just don't remember the exact quote, something along the lines of, we do well to remember that a lot of the people who are, who surround us legitimately, you know, the politicians, the business people, the lawyers, all these people around us, we do well to remember that they're um, doing a lot of the same things as the person you dismiss as a con artist on the street. It's just a social legitimacy that's conferred to what they do. Right. Like how different is that guy who approached me outside the farmer's market? How different is his tactic from someone who gets paid a six figure salary to sell me soap or whatever, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, that's chilling and fascinating. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about catfishing because my, I know Amina is not on this call, but my co-host is, is a long-term student of catfishing and like all its many iterations. And I'm wondering if, if this has changed, gotten easier, et cetera, in like the digital social media, super connected era. Catfishing, which is just, um, I think, the, the modern term for impostering has been around forever. But the modern era, the, the era of catfishing that's actually goes by the name catfishing is, I think, it's just a goldmine. It's so easy to craft an identity and to make people think you're legitimate because we use all sorts of technological and online resources as things that confer legitimacy. So the fact that, you know, that we all use all these social networks, we trust social networks because we use them and people we know use them. There was one con artist who I follow in the book who was so good at basically creating fake online trails for himself, profiles that connected to one another on Facebook, on Twitter. He'd create dating profiles. He even created Wikipedia pages about himself and wrote himself into Wikipedia pages on lineages because he was pretending to be an aristocrat. So people who were just doing kind of this superficial search would see all sorts of hits. And he crafted these identities over a, a period of time that was pretty sophisticated. And so, you know, even if you try to do like a rudimentary Google search, especially if someone, by the way, uses a very common name, which a lot of them do because they're smart, you just get inundated and you're like, oh, yeah, he's he seems legitimate. She seems legitimate. It's so incredibly easy also to join people's social networks. There was the fake Politico journalist who started um, who started friending all of these journalists who who would actually accept her friend request. And she was catfishing, or we think. She might have not even been a she. I'm just calling her a she because her profile picture was female. But by the time the story broke, I actually checked to see if I had a Facebook friend request from her because I felt hurt that she hadn't friended me. And she had, in fact. And we had 80 Facebook friends in common. So by wow. that point, 80, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 80 of my writer journalist friends had accepted this made-up person's friend request. That is so easy. It's just kind of, it's a gimme type of type of situation. 
Yeah, it makes me feel good about my policy of like no Facebook friends who are not people I actually know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my policy as well, which is why I ignored her friend request and didn't even realize she'd friend requested me until until this whole story broke. Because if I don't know you, and we might not have met in real life, I don't know if you and I are Facebook friends, but I certainly would be Facebook friends with you. Um, I assume you're actually Anne Friedman, right? We're, we're a... <laughs> There's the twist, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think it's a really smart policy. Catfishing is really hard to avoid. It's gotten so easy, and I actually see it as getting progressively easier the more of our lives we entrust to technology. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for talking to me about the book. I'm going to go Facebook friend request you immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And I will accept immediately. Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Maria. Thanks so much, Anne. This was a lot of fun. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on iTunes, where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or even email us callyrgf at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. You can look that link up yourself or on Instagram at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.